essentially that's how I view Christian nationalism. It, it's the idol of nationalism under the veneer of Christianity. And, and in this way, Christian nationalism is to political power what the prosperity gospel is to money and material wealth. All right. Welcome, everybody. Today, I am joined by my friend and colleague and brother in Christ, who is a professor and an author and a pastor. This is David Ritchie joining me from Texas, where he lives and serves. Now, David and I were spoke together last June on the first time that he was with me on All Things. He authored a book about nationalism and taking a closer look specifically at the spirituality that is combined with nationalism. And so that conversation that we had back in June was really helpful. And I will post that in the show notes those that you can go back and listen to that. But we're going to kind of have part two today. Um, you know, tomorrow is the second anniversary of the riot or the insurrection at the United States Capitol. Um, the January 6th Congressional Committee has finished up their work investigating Donald Trump. And as you probably know, he's been referred to the Department of Justice on four criminal charges. So this week in particular, nationalism is on our minds as a nation. It's something that seems to keep coming up. It doesn't go away. Um, but as we approach that anniversary tomorrow, I thought it would be helpful to ask David back on and dive even a little bit deeper into nationalism and spirituality as they are related. So David, welcome to All Things. Thanks for coming back. Jen, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be on your show again. So can you remind everybody who you are, where you serve, why you're interested in nationalism? Give us a little um, background on your life. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm from West Texas. I live in Amarillo, Texas, which is um, a, a city in the northern Texas panhandle. And um, I love my city. I love my church. And nationalism and Christian nationalism is just increasingly more a, a felt force in my pastoral context. And because of that, I, I wanted to try to understand a subject that is typically understood through the lenses of the social sciences, history, sociology, political science, and then view that same subject through the lens of the Bible, through the lens of Christian theology. And in many ways, what I wanted to furnish in my book, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism, is a pastoral theology of nationalism and Christian nationalism to help furnish biblical and theological categories to be able to speak to this very relevant, very pressing issue of our day. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, so let's just start to dip our toes into the water. Um, I imagine some listeners and myself, as I've started to sort of become more aware of nationalism, it feels a little bit disturbing to say that nationalist movements have spiritual aspects or that nationalism and spirituality or religion overlap. So can you help us just to get into the water here? Is that always the case? What does that look like? What, what do you mean that there are spiritual roots or components to nationalism? Absolutely. So how I approach nationalism is, is through the category of disordered loves. And, and so I do believe that one can have a rightly ordered love for his or her nation, that that's a good thing. We would call that love patriotism. Nationalism is a distortion of patriotism. It's when that love becomes disordered, when that love twists into idolatry. And so when we are talking about nationalism, essentially what we're talking about is elevating a good thing into an ultimate thing. And in that way, it becomes an idol. And idolatry and spirituality are, are very much connected ideas in the word of God. 
Um, that's why the Apostle Paul warns the Corinthians to not participate in idolatrous practices, because in doing so, they would in a ways share fellowship um, with demons. And, and so there is this connection between idolatry and spirituality, but especially when you begin to dig into the word of God and the language of principalities and powers or rulers and authorities, you see that there's a particular connection to this particular type of idolatry and spirituality. That um, going back into the Old Testament, there's this deep connection between national patron deities and them not just being dead and dumb idols, but actually there being a spiritual aspect to this. That in many ways, the the, the nations of the world um, prior to the coming of Christ were in a level of spiritual oppression. And even when you begin to understand nationalism kind of from a more religious angle, you'll, you'll notice that the temptation to idolize the state or to idolize particular political figures or leaders of the state, um, that really is one of the most ancient, enduring forms of human idolatry that's ever existed. I mean, as long as there have been Christian religions that are, or rather, I should say, as long as there have been false religions, there has been this temptation to look to the state to do things that only God can do for us and to save us. Yeah. Why do you think we do that as a pastor, David? Why do we turn to the strength of our nation? And again, this is not just the United States in 2023 or the United States in 1776, but um, why is this an ancient issue for us? I mean, the, the human heart is, of course, a factory of idols, as, as John Calvin said. It's, it's something that we very naturally will take good things and elevate them into ultimate things. But I, I think the issue is that we become afraid. Um, we're afraid of the future. And we think that perhaps the state or a, a certain political vision can be that which gives us peace. Um, we feel insecure and we feel like a certain political vision can give us a, a sense of safety. Um, we, we feel despairing about the future and where the world is going or where our nation might be going. And we, we look to political solutions to do more than just mitigate the problem but to truly save us mm-hmm. and, and to actually um, bring about some account of redemption. Um, in fact, yeah. there's a, a brilliant author named uh, David T. Coises. He wrote a book called Political Visions and Illusions. And what he does is he essentially analyzes different political philosophies and shows how each of them contain an account of redemption. Um, it, each of them define the primary problem that we have, that society has differently. And then they offer various solutions of salvation and redemption. And I I think why we should understand nationalism more as a a species of religion than political philosophy is because nationalism can actually have a whole different forms. Um, You can have a more right-leaning version of nationalism. You can also have a left-leaning version of nationalism. And, And so nationalism itself isn't a philosophy of approaching issues of justice or governance as much as it is a religious shell that will oftentimes encase and enshrine another type of political vision to be advanced. Only now it's being advanced with a religious level of fervor and devotion. It's no longer simply something that we look to and that uh, as something that can perhaps provide some level of just public policy. It's Mm -hmm. something that we have this unflinching devotion to, this radical fervor towards, and that's why it can be so very dangerous. 
I think it's interesting. You kind of speak to something that um, is hard to put my finger on, but I think as a people, we feel that religious fervor when it comes to nationalism. That's why it's constantly in the headlines. We're all talking about and thinking about it. We feel that religious fervor. And yet we think we are a post-religious people, you know, that we are only reasonable people, rational people. We're beyond spirituality. And so we don't look at it that way. We look at it historically, politically, sociologically, um, but very few people are looking at it necessarily spiritually. And so I appreciate this conversation because, you know, you're a pastor, I'm a Christian author. We both think that the idols of the heart are really what we need to be getting at here. And so it is a spiritual issue. And yet in the media, we see it as purely political or purely sociological, but the spirituality is real. Absolutely. And it's something that um, absolutely summons people to a, a level of worship mm-hmm. that I think the the Church of Jesus Christ absolutely needs to understand and needs to address. Yeah, that's true. Level of worship. Okay. I want to get this right. You recently shared a paper at the American Academy of Religion. And in that paper, you argue that nationalist movements tend to use messianic characterizations to elicit a level of religious devotion from their followers. Okay, so national movements are using messiahs, messianic people, messianic characters. I want to dive into that a little bit. What does that look like? Can you give us an example? Talk to us about the messiah figure when it comes to nationalism. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've noticed in in my studies is in different versions of nationalism, there is this tendency to almost co-opt and utilize Christian categories and Christian language in order to advance the nationalist cause. And fascinatingly, uh, across the board, nationalist movements have this tendency to elevate political leaders or to elevate political means into a functional messiah. Um, it, it is that which saves us. Um, and this is really fascinating because it's it's deeply ancient as well. Um, even before the time of Christ, you have you know, pharaohs that are viewed as essentially the incarnation of the Egyptian god Horus. You have Sumerian kings that are viewed as godmen. Um, one of the more fascinating things is in the Roman Empire, Augustus essentially passed a motion um, through the Roman Senate to apotheosize Julius Caesar. Um, Julius was the former ruler, and he was also Augustus's adoptive father. And, and so by passing this motion that elevated a man to a deity, um, it, it actually turns Augustus into the son of a god, um, which is actually a term that can be on some of the, the coinage of that time. Um, and it's there, there's all kinds of ironies to this because, you know, the last thing that the Roman Senate did in relation to Julius Caesar was stab him to death. And so uh, they, they come back around and then they elevate him to the position of godhood. And this is actually the beginning of the Roman imperial cult. And that becomes so important in Christian history because mm-hmm. the primary reason that the early Christians were persecuted and martyred was not because they believed that Jesus was Lord. It's because they believed that Caesar wasn't. Hmm. It's because that they would not offer sacrifices of worship um, to the divinity and the majesty of Caesar. Wow. And, and that does give us a little bit of a haunting lesson because Caesar is just fine with you worshiping Jesus and Caesar. Yeah. yeah. But Caesar gets really upset when Jesus is viewed as the exclusive Lord, um, the Lord of mm-hmm. heaven and earth. That, that's something that, um, that the idol of 
nationalism and imperialism just just can't tolerate is that absolute claim of Christ. And, and so what you'll see now in more Christianized nations is this tendency to be able to view kings or presidents in messianic categories and in, in messianic mm-hmm. language. And, and so it, it's fascinating, even in the uh, the essentially the, the coronation of the British monarch, we'll see this this next coming summer. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a hymn that is sung called the Priest of Zadok. And it's all about essentially Zadok anointing Solomon to be the heir of David. And, and so it's presenting even the the kingship or the the royalty of this nation, England, being in continuity with the line of David. And, and, and so doing it frames it in a very messianic light. That's speaking to an inherently messianic um, devotion that then is is meant to be evoked to the state and ultimately to the monarch. But um, we, we see this all the time as well. And we, we see this on the right and the left um, mm-hmm. uh, where, where people will um, kind of utilize these messianic characterizations in ways that they present themselves in campaigns or ways that some of their supporters will support them. And it is something that speaks to us, not necessarily on the level of the national, the rational mind, but at the register of our imagination. Um, we begin to um, look to these figures in messianic ways. And that mm-hmm. that begins to suggest that what our politics are, are essentially our functional gospel. And, mm-hmm. and that becomes something that we, we need to be very, very sensitive to and very discerning about because right. we begin to cross a line to where, where we're seeing something that is really nationalism or really a political vision that is in, then veneered by Christian language and Christian categories. Mm-hmm. And essentially, yeah. that's how I view Christian nationalism. It, it's the idol of nationalism under the veneer of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in this way, Christian nationalism is to political power what the prosperity gospel is to money and material wealth. Mm-hmm. It's instrumentalizing Jesus. It's using Jesus as a stepping stone to get to the thing that we really want, the thing that we really worship, the, the thing on which we've placed ultimate value. Yeah. Wow. That's really helpful. The The parallel that you just made between the prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism, that's very helpful because... Um, I think we can latch on to the prosperity gospel thing a little bit better. Um, you know, we we recognize that, oh, that is clearly using the name of God, using Jesus, using his word to gain financial um, wealth or health, whatever your um, perspective is there. But with nationalism, it's maybe using the name of Christ, using the Bible, using Christian things to gain national strength or national power. Um, that is so interesting. Here's something I've always wondered. Is this on purpose? You know, are, are there like the founders of nationalist movements sitting around, you know, they got a whiteboard, they're making a PowerPoint. Is it, is this intentional? You know, we got to get ourselves a Messiah. Here's the Messiah. This is the guy we're going to go for. I mean, is this on purpose or does it somehow sort of evolve? Maybe the question's too broad, but I've always wondered, like, is there a playbook for this or is this just what we automatically subconsciously do? I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. I, I do think that there's mm-hmm. this impulse to kind of view um, political leaders in messianic terms. And I do think that a lot of times the followers of these political leaders will be very prone to um, elevate their preferred leader um, to this messianic state. And then oftentimes mm-hmm. political leaders do appropriate um, mm-hmm. these terms that have been mm-hmm. given. And so like if you're familiar with Simon Barcoba, um, one of the um, 
many false messiahs, the false Christ figures that were kind of in the, the earliest centuries of the church. This is a guy that led a Jewish nationalist movement. And, and the reason he's called Simon Barkova is he's, he's the son of a star. Um, a rabbi essentially is equating him with, with certain prophecies of the Old Testament saying, this is the guy, this is God's anointed liberator king. And this is, of course, after the time of Christ. And so he's, in many ways, Simon Markoba is a great example of a literal antichrist. Um, and we still do this with leaders today. And so um, there have been times where um, someone like President Trump has been called the chosen one um, by members of um, conservative media or um, some self-styled YouTube prophets. And then he'll refer to himself in interviews as the chosen one, or yeah. he'll retweet people that are, that are saying essentially that he should be viewed as the king of Israel. And again, these are messianic terms. And so this kind of puts him into more of a messianic category. Um, um, him being even referred to as the Isaiah 45 um, Cyrus figure um, and, and the servant of the Lord even begins to kind of create a fuzzy notion to where, well, is he the servant of the Lord that is also in a place like Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. And uh, a guy like Trump will lean into like, look at the ways mm -hmm. I'm suffering on behalf mm -hmm. of my people, on behalf of my nation. And people will begin to almost um, put redemptive import onto that suffering. But it's, it is true that um, others have done that. Um, mm -hmm. in, in fact, I, I, I read quite a while ago, President Barack Obama's autobiography, which is called Promised Land, which even then is the incorporation of a biblical category. Yeah. And early in his campaign process, as he was beginning to entertain the notion of um, launching into a presidential campaign, he actually uses the language of America, divided America, needing to inaugurate a new covenant with one another. Mm -hmm. And so by wow. him seeing his presidential campaign as the solution to that, I think is very much an intentional appeal to religious mm -hmm. affections and, and to mm -hmm. see this um, redemption or this restoration of the American nation in gospel-like terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us about George Washington and the artwork in the Capitol. That's something that I read in your paper and I found fascinating and have even shared that story with other people. Tell us the story of Washington. Okay, so kind of calling back to this former conversation that we had about apotheosis and knowing mm -hmm. that this was something that the Romans did to elevate certain political figures to a literal place of godhood um, mm -hmm. is very important to this conversation because the title of the artwork that you're referring to is The Apotheosis of Washington. And, and apotheosis means to make a god, essentially. Yeah, That's basically elevated okay. to the position of divinity, essentially. Okay. And so, and the location of this painting is fascinating because it's underneath the Duomo of the United States Capitol building. And so when you walk inside the building and look into, into the dome, there is a fresco and this is what the fresco is. It's um, Washington being elevated to the position of divinity. And uh, around this fresco are all these um, Roman gods. You know, there's, um, there's Neptune and there's Athena and they're essentially representing various industries or aspects of the American nation, of the American economy. And on the throne of heaven sits General George Washington. And next to him is um, the, the goddess um, uh, Columbia, who is kind of an Americanized goddess of freedom. And um, uh, on the other side of him um, sits the, the god Victory, um, or her Greek term is Nike, ironically. And uh -huh. Washington is actually sitting on a rainbow throne, which is a direct image from Revelation chapter four. And he's sitting on these clouds of heaven, 
which is a, another callback to Daniel chapter seven and, and the son of man who's coming on the heavens. And when you walk into this, this place, the architectural design, which is itself based after, you know, St. Peter's in Rome, mm-hmm. it's meant to draw you to the heavens. It's meant to uh, lift your gaze and to envision the transcendent. But instead of mm-hmm. Christ being on his throne or even Zeus being on his throne, we have Washington and the timing of that painting is also really important too, because it was painted in 1865. Um, the nation had just finished a, a civil war. And essentially you can view this as an attempt to rally a very divided nation to a, a united national vision, but it's appealing to the spiritual affections to be able to do so. And so something that I've, I found very effective in conversations when I've talked to people about this painting is that, you know, it, it can be a good thing to love your nation. But can't we all agree, if you're a Christian, that that is weird. And not only is it weird, it's <laughs> idolatrous and it's offensive for Washington to be elevated to a place that only Christ Jesus belongs. And, and in this way, I, I, I think it's a very vivid example of two things. Number one, how pervasive of a tendency it is for people and politicians and, and governmental leaders to instrumentalize and make use of Christian imagery and Christian con, uh, uh, language to be able to veneer uh, a level of worship that ultimately it's calling to itself. And two, how susceptible we are to it. Um, because um, that that's something that I, I do think we, we look at images like that and there is something that it calls us to. It causes us to, to think of the transcendent, to think of our nation as a glorious thing. And again, our nation can be a good thing, but it can never be an ultimate thing. Politics can be a good thing. It just can never be an ultimate thing because Christ is the only one that saves us. Um, he's yeah. the only one that will give us a hope that will never disappoint. He's the only one who gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken because the kingdoms of this world will shake all the time. And we need to work for justice and do good in the here and now and to um, serve our neighbors and to even do that through political policy. But when we begin to conflate it with the thing that is the primary hope of our hearts, um, it really has become something that is an idol that is competing with the worship of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Something that's taken place in the last six months since you and I talked that I've noticed is just an increasing desire on behalf of especially maybe more conservative or right-leaning believers is to self-identify as a Christian nationalist. You know, it's it's sort of to a certain population, not taboo, but rather something to be proud of. What is behind that? And what's your warning to that? Why, Why should that give us pause? Yeah, there's certainly been this massive shift that has happened since even the the beginning of my working on this project and doing the research to where when when I began to first research Christian nationalism, the thing that you would oftentimes hear um, from more conservative, more nationalistic types was that, well, Christian nationalism doesn't exist. It is not Mm -hmm. a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a negative pejorative term that liberals made up to make us look bad. And now there has been more of a shift, more of a posturing towards adopting Christian nationalism as a label that we should wear with the utmost pride, you know, and and part of that involves kind of a redefinition of terms. Um, Mm -hmm. Typically, when you think of nationalism, nationalism was a, a term that became very popular after World War II because scholars and political scientists and sociologists were saying, let's study this 
to make sure it never happens again. Let's understand mm-hmm. what nationalism is because we've just witnessed the horror of the Holocaust. We, we've mm-hmm. seen this devastating world war and we want to understand how this works so that hopefully in historical hindsight, we can never again let this happen. Mm-hmm. But now nationalism in certain circles um, begins to be redefined in terms of something that is best viewed as the opposite of globalism. And so a lot of times what you'll hear is, well, I would rather have Christian nationalism than secular globalism. And and I do think that that just betrays a tremendous confusion of the terms and it it misses the heart of the critique. Um, The reason Christian nationalism is worthy of critique is number one, we have to acknowledge that it's possible to have a disordered love for one's nation, that we can take something in creation and elevate it to the place of creator. But number two, we need to also understand that this is something that is using Christianity. It's not advancing Christianity. It's something that is using this to call devotion to a national cause instead of Christ Jesus himself. And for that reason, it's it's worthy of critique. And, and so rather than kind of having a posture of defense saying, I don't trust anybody that would be critiquing Christian nationalism because that's something that seems to be only critiquing the, the conservative movement, I would say... Um, don't miss the point. I, I would identify absolutely as politically conservative, but mm-hmm. what this is doing is it's not essentially politics being influenced by Christianity. As I said in the last talk that we had, it is our Christianity that's being molded and shaped and distorted um, due to our political allegiances. Yeah, I think that's true. When I when I look at the people in my life and in my community who are now proud to say I'm a Christian nationalist, and that line that you said, like, wouldn't we rather have a Christian nation? You know, that's hard to argue with. Of course, I think Christian policies and agenda are best. I think, you know, the Lord God is the one who made us. Therefore, I want his will, his His law to line up with the laws of my nation. So it is hard to argue with when you're having that conversation. You're like, well, geez, I don't, I don't know, but there's something weird about this. There's something off about this. And I think what you said about um, the, the the nationalism exploiting Christianity, that our Christianity is being shaped by nationalism, that's really helpful, that it's sort of being used. Our, our God, our scriptures, our values are being exploited for political gain or for a nationalist gain. And that's pretty disturbing. But I think it's also hard to convince somebody who is on that, who's sort of on that bandwagon that this is what's happening, you know, to say to somebody, your Christianity is being influenced by your nationalism. Your God is being exploited. You're being exploited, by the way, you know? Mm. So, you know, I'm thinking of people that I talk to who I've heard say Trump is God's man. You know, the first time I heard that was shocking to me. Now I hear it frequently, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like so overused that people aren't even weirded out by it anymore. But how do I get in that conversation from somebody flippantly saying, well, he's God's man to this sort of warning or um, just, I don't know, trying to nudge that friend or family member a little bit away from that or to having their eyes opened a little bit um, that this is actually kind of dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that we have to do when we're dealing with an idol is, is knowing that idols have an effect on us that blinds us. Um, You know, Psalm chapter 115 tells us explicitly that, you know, that idols have ears, but do not hear. They have eyes, but do not see. And those who worship them become like them, essentially. And and so there is this unique spiritual blindness that idolatry Mm -hmm. creates. And so for that reason, what doesn't work is simply just a regurgitation of talking points that people hear on cable news or social media. Um, We really do have to be creative. And, And I think of a 
a poem by Emily Dickinson where she talks about you, you tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And the, the notion that the image she uses is like sometimes this burst of light, of lightning. If you look at dead on the eye, it, it'll blind you. But a truth that dazzles gradually is, is something that, that brings understanding and an awareness. And, and I do think that this is a, a, an issue that won't be simply confronted and deposed in one conversation, um, but it, it takes a lot of conversations, which is why the church needs to talk about this issue and try to understand it in a responsible way. But it also is something that I have noticed that it's a lot easier to see someone else's idol. <laughs> and so that's why I use the prosperity gospel analogy is because many Christians would acknowledge that there's an issue with the prosperity gospel. It's using Jesus as a means to an end. It's using Jesus as a means to get to money or material wealth or health or whatever it is that we really want in worship. And that installs this, this notion. Yeah, it's, it's wrong to use Jesus as a means to an end. But then you can substitute that idol and say, well, what about power and looking to ultimate power in that way? Um, helping people be able to understand that there's a similar mechanism of instrumentalization that's happening there. Likewise, too, I, I think it's a lot easier to see this particular type of idolatry when you're talking about a different nation. And, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. a lot of times a, a, a move that a lot of Christian nationalists will make is to view the United States of America as almost like a new type of Israel, a new type of God's covenant people. And it's hard for people to get outside of that mindset. But when you look at something like the the, the independence uh, movement in the Netherlands, where they're garnering their independence from Spain, they're using a lot of these same categories. They're viewing mm -hmm. Holland as the new Israel. They're viewing King William the Silent, which is someone most Americans don't even know about, as a new type of David. And when you look at those historical examples, you can be able to say, like, that's weird. Or or you can you know go to the 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 Duomo and the United States Capitol building and say, mm -hmm. okay, at least we need to install that there's a limit to this, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's wrong to actually put someone other than Jesus on the literal throne of heaven. And so I, I found it helpful to, at least in a conversation, get someone to understand or at least agree that there is a backstop to this, that we can go mm -hmm. so far into our devotion to the nation that it does become religious in nature and that it is crucial to understand whenever we're looking to Christ as a means rather than the end. Yeah. And, and those, those two things, most Christians that, that really do have a sincere devotion to Jesus would agree on those two points. And once you establish that foundation, that at least gives you the ability to move into to other things as well. Yeah. Thank you, David. This has been really enlightening. So helpful. Where can people keep up with you and your work? So the, the most content that I put out is, is week after week, essentially as a local church preacher. And so you can go to RedeemerChristianChurch.com, um, listen to our, our sermon podcast. We typically walk through books of the Bible. Um, I am also somewhat active on social media. Um, you can find me on Twitter for as long as Twitter exists um, at David A. Ritchie. And um, most importantly, where you can get access to some of these ideas is through my book, um, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism, which I, I published with Withenstock um, just this last year. It was actually um, this week last year when the book first became available for purchase. And so you can um, buy that wow. on Amazon. You can um, buy that directly from Withenstock, my publisher. And um, and, and hopefully um, more things will, will come in the future to where we can continue to have this conversation because I, I do think it's crucial 
for especially pastors to be able to speak up on these issues. Um, this is not something that we can outsource um, to cable news or academia or social media. It, it's something that we do need to understand in, in biblical and theological ways. And I hope I can at least have some small contribution to that. Yeah. I, and you have, it's been very helpful. I will be linking all of these resources in the show notes so people can easily grab a hold of them. But with you, David, I just want to encourage listeners to keep diving in. We cannot outsource this. We cannot leave the shaping of those that we love and those in our congregations to TikTok and to political campaigns, but we need to dive in as followers of Christ and, and make sure that we're doing this hard work. So thank you, David, for helping us think deeply and do this hard work. So grateful for you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and